series speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. All right, let's bow our heads as we begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that this evening we can actually do two subjects rather than one. And we pray that you'll bless us as we move through this subject. We pray that it will be clear in our minds. We pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us. And we pray that you'll bless us once again with the presence of your holy angels. We pray that you'll come into this room and you'll be with every aspect of what takes place here. That it will be done for your glory and honour. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening as we begin the subject, I wanted to share with you a symbol and some people they often ask me about you know some of the different symbols and codes and of course I, I enjoy as a little bit of a hobby on the side uh, investigating symbols and codes that were used in the world and used in the ancient mystery religion, religions etc and one of the ones that people ask me about uh, what about hand signs and you know everybody wants to know about what are the masonic hand signs and all this kind of stuff well here's one that you'll find that's very common and that is the uh, the three finger blessing sign And many people ask, well, what is the origin of this one and where does it actually come from? And what you find is that, once again, like most of these things, they have origins that predate Christianity by a significant amount of time. And you can find them way back uh, through history. The three fingers, of course, originally were a symbol of of, uh, Isis, Horus, and Seb from ancient Egypt. These were uh, three gods that would work in coalition with each other, and, uh, and so you find that this uh, kind of a symbol has been used down through history. Not only was it a symbol of Isis, Horus, and Seb, but it was a symbol of Ishtar, Semiramis, and Tammuz. And as you find with most of these symbols that originated in ancient Babylon, you find that they spread all over the world, wherever the religion spread from. And it's interesting when you go back to ancient Babylon that you find that the Bible says that Babylon was where the languages were confused. And as the languages were confused, it actually created the origin of the different nationalities as the different different language groups spread around the world and they carried the symbolism and the religion with them wherever they went. And so you find it popping up in many different places. There are several different versions of it, um, but you find... The same kind of concept being repeated over and over and over again. In fact, um, this one's a slightly different version where you have these two fingers connected together here, the thumb and and the third finger connected there. And this one means it's a gesture of the transmission of Buddhist teaching. And so you find it um, a lot in Buddhist areas. You also find it being used... Um, by Roman gods and goddesses and Greek gods and goddesses. And here you find it within a Christian context, the same kind of symbol being used all over the place. Now, of course, the symbol has been used in more recent times and has changed somewhat somewhat the, the context of it as we come down to our day. And often you will see people when they're getting their photo taken, particularly Asian people, they go like this, don't they? Yeah. And, uh, of course, it's become a symbol that uh, is a symbol to mean peace. Now, the Bible speaks about a time of peace. And so we see lots of people using the peace symbol today. Is that going to bring peace to our world? 
Peace has been a, oh, thank you for that. Peace has been a, an important subject all down through our history and there have been efforts over and over and over again to create peace in our world. In fact, if we go back to the First World War, at that particular time there were many people who thought that we were on the edge of the millennium and that as a result of the industrial revolution that had taken place over the last hundred years and the civilization of humanity, that we were in the process of correcting ourselves and that we would be able to usher in a thousand years of peace. But there was all this friction in the world at that particular time and so they said, okay, we're going to have to have a war to get rid of this friction, but we'll call it the war to end all wars. And we had the First World War. And then, of course, just a few years later, we had the Second World War. So the first one wasn't very successful at ending war, was it? You know, the First World War was called the war we have to have. That's what they called it, to make the world a better place. And then, of course, when the war on terrorism came, we were fed the same thing, weren't we? This is the war we have to have to make the world a better place. Never ceases to amaze me how we always seem to get fed the same kind of information... And yet the Bible says quite the opposite. If we go over to 1 Timothy, what does the Bible actually say? will take place in our world as we near the end of time. 2 Timothy, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll go down to verse 13 where it says this. But evil men and seducers shall grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So does the Bible say that our world is going to get better or worse as we near the end of time? It's going to get worse. In fact, if you look at the context of it, verse 1, know this also that in which days? The last days. So the Bible is speaking about the last days and the Bible says that our world is actually going to get worse rather than better. So the whole concept of a thousand years of peace created by human beings here on this earth is just one vast delusion. So we come to a passage of the Bible that speaks about a thousand years, and we find it in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 is the only place in the Bible that directly speaks of this time period. And so we're going to use this particular passage as the basis for our study of this subject Revelation 20 in verse 1, the Bible says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and threw him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled and after that he must be loosed a little season. Now, friends, let me ask you a question. Does this passage right here sound like good news? Would our world be a better place if Satan was bound up? Yeah, it would, wouldn't it? It'd be great. In fact, I met somebody one time who said to me, oh, Satan has already been bound. Did you know that? And I'm like, no, I'd never heard that Satan has already been bound. You're like, yeah, oh, yeah, he's got, he, was, he was bound back in 1914 or something, like some date that they assigned to it. I don't remember exactly now. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if Satan has already been bound, then he is bound by a rubber chain. And that chain stretches all the way around our planet, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, indeed it does. 
Okay, so we need to find out what is this thousand years all about? And this is a fascinating um, subject. What we will do is we'll go back to the beginning of the prophecy and we'll start to build ourselves a chronology for what actually takes place here at the beginning of the thousand years. Then we're going to look at what happens during the thousand years and then we will look at what happens at the end of the thousand years. So to go to the beginning of this little section right here, we go back to Revelation 19 and verse 11. Revelation 19 and verse 11. The Bible says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but himself, and he was clothed with a clothing dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who is that, friends? Okay, so here we have a picture of Jesus, and Jesus is leaving heaven. Well, we ask ourselves the question as this new vision begins, and Jesus leaves heaven, where is he heading to? We go down to verse 19. The Bible says, And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat upon his horse and his army. So where is he heading to? Jesus is coming to this earth. And if we go back to verse 14, we ask ourselves, well, who is it that is coming with him? The Bible says, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who are the armies of heaven? The angels. So here let's make a list of what is taking place here. A new vision begins. Christ leaves heaven. The angels are coming with him. They're coming back to this earth to destroy evil. And if we go down through, we find that that's exactly what takes place. And as they come back to this earth, this world has arrayed itself in rebellion against God. This is the final union of the world that we have read about already. This is globalism taking place um, at its final level, spoken of as being Babylon, They are in rebellion against God and they are destroyed by the return of Jesus. And you can read that there. Read Revelation chapter 19 from verse 11 through to the end of the chapter for homework. And that will fill you in on all of the details taking place there. Now, what is the very next event that takes place after the return of Jesus? Chapter 20, verse 1, what's happening right there? The devil is bound The millennium or the thousand years begin. Now, we call it the millennium. That's a uh, uh, kind of a theological word. You don't usually find that in most translations of the Bible. It's a composite word, milli and annum, 1,000 years. So the Bible speaks about a 1,000-year time period right here. Okay, so we have a 1,000-year time period. We need to find out, well, how do we actually mark the beginning and the ending of this particular Time period. And the way that we mark it is with two resurrections. Now, I promised you that we would go back to John chapter 5 this evening, didn't I? So let's go back to John chapter 5 and we will go there again tomorrow evening. So, John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And the first thing that we're going to look at is that the Bible speaks about two resurrections. Let's find out what they're called. Page 431. The Bible says in verse 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, 
those that have done good under the resurrection of what? Life. And those that have done evil under the resurrection of what? So how many resurrections are there? Two. The first one is called the resurrection of life. And the second one is called the resurrection of damnation. So we have to then ask ourselves the next question. Out of these two resurrections, which one comes first? It's a reasonable question, isn't it? The answer is found in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, speaking about the subject of the millennium. If we turn over there, the Bible tells us exactly which one comes first. And we will go down to verse 6, where the Bible says, Blessed and holy is he that has part in which resurrection? The first resurrection. So the Bible says that blessed and holy is he that has passed in the first one. Therefore, we know that the first one is the resurrection of life. Isn't that so? So now we have a resurrection of damnation. When does that take place? What does the Bible say about the rest of the dead? If we go back to verse 5, it says this, but the rest of the dead live not again until when? A thousand years are finished. In fact, some people get a little confused over this. Modern translations put brackets in here to make it a little easier to understand. The Bible speaks about those who are righteous. They live and reign with Christ a thousand years in verse 4. Then in verse 5, but in contrast to the righteous, but is a contrast word, in contrast to the righteous, the rest of the dead, that's the wicked, don't live again until the thousand years are finished. Close brackets. This is the first resurrection, speaks about the righteous here. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. So simply what we have is 1,000 years separated by two resurrections. The first one is the resurrection of the righteous. The second one is the resurrection of damnation. So let's go back to the first one and let's find out a number of things. Let's find out what happens to the people when Jesus comes back and let's find out what happens to the earth. Now, when Jesus returns, there are going to be four groups of people here on earth. Let's find out what happens to them. Number one, you have the righteous who are living. Number two, you have the righteous who are dead. Then you have the wicked who are dead and you have the wicked who are living. So let's work our way down through this list and let's find out. And one of the passages that we read um, in our previous presentation was 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this will answer our question in relationship to the first two groups. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall do what? Rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, wherefore comfort one another with these words. So the Bible says that when Jesus comes back, what happens to the righteous who are dead? They're resurrected. What happens to the righteous who are living? They're caught up with the righteous who have just been resurrected and we meet together in the air. Isn't that something worth looking forward to? Ah, praise the Lord. The question is, where do we go when that happens? The answer is found in the Gospel of John. Let's go to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Page 436. 
And here we will begin reading in verse 33, just to get a little bit of context. Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and he says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek for me, and as I said to the Jews, where I go, you cannot come, so now I say to you. How do you think the disciples felt when Jesus said this to them? That would be pretty distressing, don't you think? If, you know, they, they love Jesus enormously. And Jesus comes along and says, look, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you can't come. We have Peter's reaction a little bit down in verse 36. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now. But you shall follow me afterward. Jesus makes a very clear promise right here, doesn't he? You are going to be able to follow me in the future. And then he goes on, having spoken about that, uh, in verse 14. Oh, by the way, where was Jesus going when Jesus left this earth? He's going back to heaven, wasn't he? Yeah, left this earth, he's going back to heaven. So in chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Don't stress over this. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, where is Jesus' Father's house? That's in heaven. In heaven are many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go, where is he going? To heaven, to prepare a place for you in heaven. He continues on. And if I go, where is he going? To heaven, and prepare a place for you in where? Heaven. He continues on, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. What is the promise of God's word right here that Jesus says that he is coming back to this earth to do? He's coming back to this earth to take us to heaven to be with him. So now we know what happens to the righteous when Jesus comes back. The Bible says that they're taken to heaven to be with Jesus. Well, what about the wicked? Well, let's start with the wicked who are alive when Jesus comes back. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We've looked at this one in question time a couple of times, but we'll look at it again. It says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. What does the Bible say that Jesus does to the wicked when he returns? What does it say? They're destroyed with fire, isn't that so? In fact, we can read about it in 2 Peter. Let's flick over to 2 Peter and we will, we will review this passage again. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, where it says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Well, what happens in that day? In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat in the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. The Bible says that when Jesus comes back as a thief, the atmosphere will disappear. The surface of the earth will turn to molten lava and everything on this planet that human beings have built will be burned up. So here's the situation that we have. When Jesus comes back, we know what happens to the righteous who are living. They're caught up to be with Jesus. We know what happens to the righteous who are dead. They are resurrected 
and they join Jesus in the air and are taken to heaven. We know what happens to the wicked who are living. The Bible says that they are destroyed and we already know what happens to the wicked who are dead. The Bible says, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years are finished. So how many people do you have left alive here on this earth? No one. No one left alive on this earth. In fact, the earth is depopulated at this time of all living inhabitants. The earth is entirely empty. All right, let's go in our Bibles now to Jeremiah chapter 25 and let's read about it over here. Jeremiah. So go to the middle of your Bible, you find Isaiah. The next book is Jeremiah. Isaiah, then Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25, and we will go down to verse 31. Notice what it says here. That's page 318. It says this, A noise shall come even to the ends of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will judge all flesh. He will give those that are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. That's the destruction of the wicked that we've read about. In 1 Thessalonians, we read about it in 2 Peter. We read about it in Revelation 19. We read about it again here when Jesus comes back. The wicked will be destroyed. Verse 32, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, evil shall go forth from nation to nation and a great whirlwind or a tornado shall be raised up from the coasts of the earth. And then it goes on in verse 33, and the slain of the Lord shall be at that day from one end of the earth even unto the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented, neither gathered nor buried. They shall be dung upon the ground. Why does the Bible say that nobody mourns for them, nobody gathers them, and nobody buries them? There's nobody here. There's nobody here to do that. The Bible, while we're here in Jeremiah, gives another description of what the earth will be like at this particular time if we go back to Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4, a few pages back, and you'll find it back here. In verse 23, it describes it. As I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled. And all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and there was no man. And all the birds of the heavens were fled. And I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness. And all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. The Bible describes this earth being turned into a desolate wasteland. In fact, if you read... And this must be something interesting to read for homework. Read the seven last plagues. You'll find it in Revelation chapter 16. Let me just show you. I'll just show you very quickly. Just one of those plagues, because this takes place before Jesus comes back. Just one of those plagues in Revelation chapter 16. In fact, I'll look at the last one very quickly. Revelation chapter 16, verse 18, the Bible says, There were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. So what is one of the things that happens just before Jesus comes back? A big earthquake. Have we had some big ones recently? Oh yeah, we've had some big ones, haven't we? Well, guess how big this one is. Go down to verse 20. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Now, we've seen some big earthquakes. 
But we haven't seen one like that, have we? How would you like to be standing here when Mount Warning disappears? That would really catch your attention, wouldn't it? It doesn't stop right there. Imagine the destruction this will bring. Verse 21, they fell upon men. Great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. Hailstones the weight of a talent are about the size of a watermelon. Falling at terminal velocity, they have an effective weight of 200 tons per square inch. Nothing that human beings have built will stand up to that kind of a hammering. You know, we think that as human beings, we are, we are the greatest people. You know, we come up with all these scientific things and we build an atomic bomb. And when God wants to destroy things, all he does is freeze water. He doesn't need a whole lot of science. He just freezes water. You can imagine what our earth is going to look like after this kind of a hammer. A massive earthquake, hammered by hailstones, burnt by fire, melted, everything broken down, the Bible says. Imagine what our earth will look like. One place in Isaiah describes it this way. It says, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty. He makes it waste. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. Now, while we're here in Jeremiah chapter 4, I want to draw your attention to something very significant. Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 23, where it says, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. Whereabouts else in the Bible do you find that phrase? Yeah. Now we get to get some clues about an important subject in relationship to the binding of Satan. Where did the Bible say that Satan would be bound? Do you want to review it very quickly? Revelation chapter 20. Let's review it. You might want to hold your finger here in Revelation 20. We're going to spend a bit of time going backwards and forwards from it. Revelation chapter 20. In verse 3, it says, And cast him into the bottomless pit. Hold that thought. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. And let's read the other place in the Bible where you find this same phrase, The earth was without form and void. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. Let's make a little bit of a list here. The Bible says that everything is broken down, that the earth is desolate. It is without form and void. So what has God done when he comes back to this earth? He takes the righteous away, and now he has taken the earth back so to speak, to scratch. You know how sometimes when you're working on a project and the project doesn't go quite right, and it's like, okay, forget it, start from scratch. God's been working on a project here. Has it gone quite right? No? And so what's he going to do? Okay, let's start from scratch. He takes it back to just exactly the same way that it was at the time of creation. The Bible describes both of them as being without form and void. 
But then it goes on and uses another word to describe the earth. It goes on and it says, and darkness was upon the face of the what? The deep. Do you know what that word deep is in the Septuagint, in the Greek? It's the word abusos or abyss. Do you know the other place in the Bible where you find that word? Revelation chapter 20, where Satan is thrown into the bottomless pit, the abusos or the abyss. So you didn't know you were living in a hole, did you? The Bible says we're all living in a hole. Well, it will be after God has finished with it at his return. This gives us some clues in relationship to where Satan is bound. Let me ask you a question. Where is the only place in the universe that has accepted Satan? This earth. It's the only place he has access to. Isn't that so? So if this is the only place that Satan has access to in this earth, and he can't go anywhere in this earth, what does God do? God comes down and he destroys the earth. Satan is still stuck here. Then he describes the earth as being a bottomless pit. So you're wondering where the bottomless pit is? You're wondering where Satan lives for a thousand years? Well, it's right here, but in a slightly different condition to what we are looking at it right now. The next question that comes up is this. How is Satan bound? Well, to understand how Satan is bound, we need to understand the purpose for binding Satan. If you understand the purpose for binding Satan, you can understand how he's bound. Let's go to Revelation 20. Let's read why the Bible says that Satan is bound and then we can understand how. You see, you can't take a spirit being and bind him with a literal chain. Isn't that so? In fact, if you read your Bibles, you can't even take a human being who is demon-possessed and bind him with a chain because he'll just break those chains through supernatural power. Okay, Revelation 20 and verse 3. The Bible says, And cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should do what? Deceive the nations no more until the thousand years are finished. So what's the purpose for binding Satan? So that he can deceive the nations no more. Isn't that so? Yeah. Now, let's have a look at this for a moment. Satan is confined to this earth. It's the only place that has ever accepted him. He is here on this earth. Is Satan able to deceive anybody during the thousand years? No, why not? There's no one here. The place is empty. Satan has always wanted to have unlimited control of this world. That's always been what he has aspired to. And during the thousand years, God says, okay, that's what you've always wanted. Here it is. Take it. It's all yours for a thousand years. You've got solitary confinement for the next thousand years. And this is exactly what it would look like if Satan did have ultimate control over this planet. And so Satan's stuck here. And so what we have here is Satan is not bound by a literal chain. You can't do that. However, Satan is bound by a chain of circumstances. And we understand this language because we use it all the time. Let's say that uh, tomorrow you were going to move house. And you rang me up and said, Lyle, can you come over and give me a hand to move house tomorrow? And I said, look, I would love to come and help you move house tomorrow, but I'm sorry, I can't come because I'm all tied up at the moment. Would you come running over to my house to untie me? No, you wouldn't. 
That's my oldest son. That was taken a few years ago. I was doing the, pre- the pre- first time I ever did this presentation. I said, Harley, I need some, I need a picture. And so we snapped that picture and he got all tied up with um, speaker cables. But it worked. What is it that is tying me up so that I can't come and help you? It is my circumstances and Satan is bound by the circumstances he finds himself in. He only has one planet. He can't go anywhere else in the universe and there is nobody here. So let's do a little bit of a chart. And we have our thousand years here with the events at the beginning, the events during, and the events at the end. Let's begin by putting our events at the beginning. We have the return of Jesus, followed by the righteous dead who are raised. Then we come to the living saints are caught up. Then the wicked are killed. And then Satan is bound. And then we have the earth is desolate. So during the thousand years, then we have a number of things that we know. Number one, the righteous during this time are in heaven. Number two, the wicked remain dead and Satan is bound by a chain of circumstances. Sometimes I wonder what goes through Satan's head while he is here on this earth. I mean, think about it. For a thousand years, what's he going to do? He has been intensely busy during this time period, but now... What is there to do? There is nothing to do. Sometimes I imagine him walking around the the world and thinking about the people that he lost and becoming angry. You know, as he thinks about maybe somebody who, who he had got involved in drugs and he got this person addicted and he was destroying their life throwing them into the gutter. And every time they tried to get the victory of it, he would just throw them down there again and grind them into the dust. Sitting back with a big smile on his face as he does it. This person tried and tried and tried and tried to gain the victory and they just could not because Satan was too strong for them. But one day they met Jesus Christ and suddenly Satan had no more power over that person. They found Jesus and they found salvation. And I can sort of, in my mind's eye, I picture him thinking of it and just getting angry that he lost that one. He thought he had them, but then Jesus stepped in and he lost that person. But then maybe he comes across the body of somebody right there on the earth, if there's anything left, and smiles in satisfaction as he sees a good man, somebody who lived a good life. And here you have a good man who lived a good life and who did all the right things. And he had a wife and family that loved him. And his wife and family were Christians and they went to church and they prayed for him and they encouraged him and he would hear them pray for him. And he made a decision to give his life to Jesus. Like, yes, I'm going to do it. And the devil came along and said, yeah, why don't you do that? What a great idea. You go ahead and do that tomorrow and so tomorrow came and he's like yeah I'm going to do it today and Satan said no no this is a really good idea do it tomorrow and then tomorrow and then tomorrow until one day the heavens opened Jesus returned and it was too late friends it is dangerous 
to put off, making a decision in relationship to something that God has said. When we see what God says in his word, we should be respond in surrender to him in giving our lives to him. Isn't that so? Let's not ever get put into that trap of thinking, yeah, yeah, I know that's that's what the Bible says. That's right. Absolutely. I'll do that. And the devil comes along and says, yeah, you do that tomorrow. That's a scary thought, isn't it? You think about those who were lost in the time of Noah. Here you had the most intelligent race of human beings that had ever lived on our planet. They lived for nearly a thousand years. And yet they ended up on the outside of the ark while the dumb animals ended up on the inside and the reason that they ended up on the outside was because they put off getting inside the ark for one day too many it's a dangerous thing friends we can never afford to do if God is speaking to your heart about anything to do with his word this evening surrender your heart to Jesus now and say yes I'm going to do exactly that. Well, we need to move on. We need to find out what do the righteous do during the thousand years? Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. Revelation 20 and verse 4, the Bible says this, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and the word of God. And in which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So here we have a description about the righteous. And what does the Bible say is given to the righteous during the thousand years? A work of judgment. They sit on thrones and judgment is given to them. In fact, we find this same concept in a number of different places in the Bible. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse verse 22, the Bible says, in verse 21, in fact, we'll start from verse 21, I beheld the same horn, made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. There are a number of passages where the Bible says that judgment will be given to the righteous. In fact, Paul says, know you not that you will judge angels. And so we ask ourselves this question, what kind of a judgment is it that we participate in heaven? And this is where we start to actually find out the purpose for the millennium. God does nothing without a reason and without a purpose. There is a judgment that takes place before Jesus returns. We have discovered that on a previous evening, didn't we? Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. You don't hand out rewards until you've already had a judgment. So God has a judgment in heaven. Let me ask you a question. Does God need to have a judgment? Does God need to open the records to find out who's saved and who's lost? Of course not. God doesn't need that. God already knows that. Why does God know that? God knows that because he can read our hearts. He can read our mind. Can anybody else do that? No. So why does God have a judgment? Well, we find the answer when you go back to the judgment scene in Daniel chapter 7. The Bible says, Thousand thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. You have the assembled multitudes of the whole universe there present when the judgment begins. You see, the rest of the universe 
They can't read our mind like God can. They can only see what's on the outside. And let's say that God comes along and God says, okay, I'm going to save this person over here. And that person is Manasseh and he's like the worst person who has ever lived. By the way, Manasseh was the worst person that ever lived in the Bible. And he gave his heart to God right at the end of his life. And God saved him. Isn't, isn't God wonderful? He says, I'm going to save Manasseh. And, and there's a few people like, well, I wonder about that. You know, I've just got a couple of questions about Manasseh. You reckon he was, his conversion was real? It came just before he died. So God opens up the books of record. Here's the judgment. Here's the record of Manasseh's life. Here's what happened. As a result, everybody can see that Manasseh gave his life to God and his record of sin was wiped clean. And when the books of record are opened, the righteous acts that Jesus did through Manasseh are right there. What about if you've got somebody else who lived a really good life and everybody looked up to this person He brought other people to Jesus. He lived a wonderful life. And God says, okay, I'm going to condemn this person. And there were others in the universe who said, oh, wait a minute. If those seeds of doubt were left there to remain, given the context of eternity, sooner or later, questions would arise and evil would return. So what does God do? He holds the judgment in open court before the assembled multitudes of the universe so that when the judgment has taken place, everybody can see that God is righteous, God is holy, God is just, God is all loving, and God is all merciful. No questions left in anybody's mind, no opportunity for sin ever to come back again. However, there's a problem with that. It has to take place before we get to heaven because God has to have the judgment before we are there. And we don't get to see it take place, do we? So for a thousand years, God does the same thing again. He opens up the books and he says, okay, have a look. And so now we can see the books of record. And we can see why Manasseh is there with us in heaven. And we can see why this other person who was a really great godly person, we thought, is not there. Every doubt is removed. God is in the process of eradicating evil forever. And to get rid of it forever, he has to remove every doubt. And so there is a work of judgment that takes place in heaven, a judgment where we have the opportunity to see what God has done. So then, we come to the earth. During this thousand years is at rest. We ask ourselves the question, well, what takes place at the end of the thousand years? This brings us down to the very dramatic events at the end of the thousand years. Let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And by the way, what is it that we already know will take place at the end of the thousand years? The resurrection of the wicked. We've we've studied that at the beginning. We find that the thousand years is marked out by two resurrections, one at the beginning and one at the end. In verse 7, Revelation 20 and verse 7, the Bible says, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan is set free. Now that's interesting. What was the purpose for binding Satan? So that he could deceive people no more. What was the method for binding Satan? The people were removed. At the end of the thousand years, we know we have the resurrection of damnation. That reverses that whole equation, doesn't it? Now there are people on the earth again 
And now Satan has the opportunity to deceive them again. So now he is free. He's set free by the arrival of people. Well, it goes on. And what does he do? Well, the first thing he does in verse 8, he says, He shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Here you have the wicked of all ages. 6,000 years of evil people alive in one place at one time. And Satan, the Bible says, he goes out to deceive them. And you ask, well, how could Satan deceive them? They're already lost, right? Okay, well, let's look at what he deceives them into doing. He's not deceiving them into being lost this time. It's something else. The Bible says in verse 9, And they went up on the surface of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, here we have a skeleton view so to speak. The rest of the Bible puts the flesh on the skeleton. But what we do find here is that here on this earth is the new Jerusalem, the camp of the saints. Isn't that so? Well, how did that get here? Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, a separate prophecy. It says, And I, John, saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the new Jerusalem, the Bible says, comes down from God out of heaven. In Zechariah chapter 14, you find Jesus comes down with the new Jerusalem. And that's when the Bible says that his feet touch the top of the Mount of Olives and it spreads into a great plain. It'll have to be a big plain because the new Jerusalem stretches on one side. It's square. And from one side is about the distance from here to Adelaide. That's a big city, don't, don't you say? The good news about that big city is that there is room for all of us in that city. There is a mansion in that city with your name on it. Isn't that good news? Perfectly custom designed to your taste. So the Bible says, the New Jerusalem comes down. Jesus comes down, touches the Mount of Olives. The New Jerusalem settles there. The wicked who are dead, that's all of the wicked, are raised back to life. And Satan immediately, he's in action. He goes out and he rallies them. And he says, look, we outnumber the ones in the city. Let us take it by storm and then we can last forever. Does it work? What does the Bible say? Fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. Now, the Bible goes on a little bit in Revelation 20, and it backs up to cover something that takes place before that fire comes down. Revelation 20, verse 11. It says, And I saw a great white throne, and he that sat on it from whose face the heaven, the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to his works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. When we look at how God operates... This tells us something about the character of God. We find that a judgment takes place before Jesus comes back. Why does that judgment take place? So there is not a shred of doubt in anybody's mind anywhere, not a seed that could ever germinate 
to bring evil back to this planet because God will never remove your power of choice. Then there's a judgment that takes place during the thousand years where you can ask any question you want. You can go to God and say, well, what about this person? Why aren't they here? And what about this person? Why are they here? Maybe you won't ask it quite like that. So there's no seed of doubt anywhere in your mind. And then just in case there is any wicked person anywhere who has something who can stand up and say, now, wait a minute. You misjudged me. What does God do? He resurrects them back to life. After everybody is satisfied that God is righteous, God is just, God is loving, God is all merciful. Everybody's satisfied. He raises them back to life. Okay, does anybody here have anything to say? The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, there is only one time in the Bible when that is possible. And that is when every person who has ever lived is alive in one place at one time. And when every single person, when the wicked get down on their knees and they say, Lord, you are righteous, you are just, you are merciful, and we cannot be saved. It's the final act that removes every doubt that there is so that evil will never come back again. This is God's whole purpose. God's whole purpose is all about getting rid of evil so that it never, ever returns. This is why the millennium exists. So let's work through the end of our chart here very simply. The Bible says that Christ, the saints in the city descend, that the wicked dead are raised, that Satan is set free, that the last judgment takes place, that Satan and sinners are destroyed. Well, there's one more event to take place after this. Revelation chapter 21, the next verse is verse 1, still part of the same prophecy, the last verse of this prophecy. It says this, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Before I speak about this, I want to consider for a moment something that we spoke about a little while ago. And I don't know exactly what it will be like. But I imagine in my mind's eye, once again, you have this good man who lived a good life and yet refused to give his life to Jesus Christ. Satan tempted him just to put it off for one day, one day at a time. Suddenly, it's too late And when the resurrection of damnation comes up, he's resurrected outside the city. Let's say he goes up to that city and he looks through the walls. The Bible says they're as clear as crystal. He looks through the walls and he sees his wife and family on the inside. Imagine the loss that he would feel at that time. You know, I wish I could paint it in the most vivid language so that none of us would ever put off making a decision for Jesus about things that we know to be right for one moment. But every one of us would say, Jesus, I love you. I want to do everything you say. Because there is a city that Jesus has prepared for us. It is a beautiful city and he has custom designed a mansion right there for you. 
The Bible goes on in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. I says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. The Bible speaks about a time when God will recreate this earth. And I look forward to that day. You know why I look forward to that day? The first time God created this world, I missed it because I wasn't here. But the second time, I plan to be here, don't you? I want to watch it take place. I want to stand on top of the wall of that city, 200 feet up, and I want to see God say, let there be grass, let there be trees, let there be birds, let there be animals. Don't you want to see that take place? I want to see that take place, friends, and this is what the millennium points us forward to, a day when this earth will be restored back to its Edenic beauty and purity and sin will never exist again. Friends, don't we serve a wonderful God? Don't you want to be surrendered to him? Do you want to be surrendered to Jesus? Praise God, friends. God is so good. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your incredible love for us. We thank you for the promise of a new earth, a new city, a place where righteousness lives. We thank you that the millennium, the thousand years, is a time period that you have set aside for the purpose of eradicating sin from the universe in such a way that it will never return again, that one day this universe will be entirely clean from one end to the other. We pray that every one of us will be a part of that great day. May we be all be fully surrendered to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 024973 Three four five six.
You heard Will They Be There by Call to Praise.